0: Hello, friends. I just finished the interview that you are about to hear. It's with Amanda Buckman, who's a therapist in the South Bay Area of California. She talks a lot about working with people who are in relationships who have spectrum disorder. And she also has a specialty in human sexuality and dealing with sexual dysfunction, things like affairs and putting couples back together. She also has a specialty in working with blended families. This interview is really interesting for anybody who is in a long-term committed relationship because these issues are things that everybody deals with. And she also talks specifically about stress and culture in the Silicon Valley, the South Bay area of California, where the stress level is absolutely off the charts. If you know, you know. So, without further ado, enjoy Mindful Mutiny. Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO and transformational coach, helping you get unstuck from burnout and stagnation. On the Mindful Mutiny Podcast, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that keeps you from achieving your highest potential. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a comment and a wonderful review. That sort of thing really helps a podcast like this get off the ground and start really growing. I am so excited today to have a guest. This is somebody that I've known all my life. This is somebody that has chosen a profession that is similar to mine and that we've kind of grown together and exchanged a lot of uh, information about uh, how we do what we do and, and bounce cases off of each other. Amanda Buckman is an associate marriage and family therapist. Amanda, thank you for joining
1: me. Thank you for having me.
0: Amanda is an associate marriage and family therapist, a mother of four, and she's dedicated to strengthening lives and relationships through positive communication, conflict resolution, and self-care. Currently pursuing her doctorate degree in counseling education and supervision, Amanda employs the non-judgmental strength-based approach to guide couples in finding solutions to relationship challenges. Specializing in neurodiverse couples, she emphasizes a tailored communication strategy, emotional acknowledgment, and fostering fondness within relationships. Drawing from her personal experience as a mother of a as the mother of a neurodivergent child, Amanda supports parents through positive parenting skills and understanding the purpose behind a child's behavior and encouraging positive reinforcement. Her approach is centered on celebrating small steps towards larger goals and creating a foundation for thriving relationships.
1: That's a lot. Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, where'd this come from?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> the thing the thing that I am really excited about talking with you about is that you have a particular specialty that everybody here is going to be interested in. And so, can you talk a little bit about what it is that you do?
1: Yes, I, I actually do a lot right now. So I'm currently working with neurodiverse couples but i'm also working with blended families and i'm also working with co-parenting and i'm a mental health forensic counselor so i'm working with a conditional release individuals who are also have a medical or a mental diagnosis um okay. it, yeah. now you've you've said
0: a lot of words here and when <laughs> you're talking about a neurodiverse couple can you talk
1: about what that
0: actually is
1: Yes, good question. So, a neurodiverse couple would be either one or both of the participants in the couple have either autism, they're on the spectrum in some manner, like um, Asperger's, or have ADHD or some kind of developmental delay. So, there's uh, they're not neur- neurotypical, as I would say, the, the cookie cutter person. Um, so, the approach is more there's more social. Uh, uh, differences in how they communicate, what their needs are, what we would expect from the, the person in the, part, the partnership.
0: As I grew up, you know, you grow up with the people who are around you in your family and the ideas and the ways of doing things are very normal to you. And it really actually has been long into my career that it finally dawned on me that some people around me might be neurodiverse, Mm -hmm. but you become so accustomed to the way that somebody thinks, the way that somebody operates that I, as a clinician can look at a client and go, yeah, I think that we've got a little bit of spectrum disorder going on here. But when it came to it dawning on me, Mm -hmm. that people that have been close to me all my life might be neurodiverse, might be spectrum- I, it, it kind of blew my mind. I, I wasn't
1: quite ever thinking that. Right. And a lot of people, when they're in a social situation, like when we're young, they put on a mask, they pass socially, uh, especially females. Um, so we don't really feel the full brunt of their neurodiversity. Where it's felt is within a relationship where we bring our attachment issues. We wonder, why is the person I'm dating? Why is the person I'm married to? not understanding or not empathizing with my emotions why are they telling me how to feel most likely it's because they don't experience emotions the same way or they don't understand that other people may feel an emotion differently from where they what they feel such as people with um what they used to say asperger's so they can't empathize um and so that is what i work with is teaching uh, the neurodiverse individual how to listen to their partner, and teaching the neurotypical partner how do you communicate your needs in a way that they will understand.
0: All right. So there's a couple of different ways that I want to go here, but you're talking about communication. You've got you've mm-hmm. got the person that might have some mild spectrum disorder, and you have the person who doesn't. Yes. And maybe this is a new revelation for the the neurotypical person, Mm -hmm. but you're teaching skills on how to communicate. So if you've got one of these couples, how are you teaching these couples how to communicate across that line?
1: So communication is the biggest thing to work on. It's the foundation. And so you bring up, okay, using the The system of when I feel such and such emotion uh, or when I, when I experience this, this is how I feel what I need is. So it's, it's just creating scripts because a lot of neurodiverse individuals, they, they see things linearly. And so you have to teach the neurotypical how to communicate in a linear fashion. And also if they need it slowed down step by step, you know, the, the neurodiverse individual comes home from work rather than a kid's jumping all over him. And the, the wife saying, did you pick up the milk? Okay. How was work? You know, throwing all these questions out, you teach the neurotypical to slow down. Did you have a good day at work? Receive response. Did you grab the milk? I forgot. Can you go back and get it? So you you teach a script to slow things down so both can communicate what their, their needs are um, and and you know have that communication, but it's being received and given by both. And unfortunately, it is a lot of work for the neurotypical um, because they're they're having to learn a new language. And the neurodiverse individual is also learning a new language that they may not understand, but they need to understand the importance to the neurotypical
0: so what i'm kind of hearing you saying here is that you're teaching a kind of communication for the person who has spectrum disorder that it's clear and it's clean it's one yeah. question answer one question instead of several questions that can be what overwhelming
1: overwhelming and cause shutdown and withdraw and encourage the neurodiverse individual to They've already been masking all day at work, now they're home and they want to decompress and they just wanna hide because they don't want to feel the overwhelming stimuli that they were already feeling all day at work.
0: Okay, all right, and and so the boys, tend to get a diagnosis early in school because it's the same reason that boys who have ADHD get diagnosed really early (laughs) in their lives because they might be causing problems in class. Whereas the girls tend to learn how to mask and they tend to be very quiet. And so in my own practice, I've experienced women who are very new to the concept that they might have something called spectrum. They don't know much about it. They're kind of freaking out a little bit yeah. and it's a little bit different in women. Can you talk about some of the differences in the way that the different <laughs> sexes experiences?
1: Absolutely. I actually wanna start at the beginning. So when we were kids, it was believed that only boys were had autism because studies only were done on boys between the ages of three and and eight. And so only little boys were diagnosed. They missed the girls because girls who were diagnosed with any kind of mental health disorder, they were more profoundly symptomatic. Uh, so girls who w- weren't on the spectrum, who did have autism were not identified because they were able to pick up social cues to, to fit in socially, wear a mask. And it wasn't until maybe those were the girls that in high school would be the oddballs. Like she's weird. What's wrong with her? She she's uh, she's so isolating. Uh, she you know keeps to herself. She's highly focused on things that normally girls her age would not be focused on, like dragon stuffies, you know, cute little rainbow thingies. So those were the oddballs. But it turns out those were the, probably the girls who had autism. But they were more their behaviors were more socially acceptable uh, rather than little boys who are bouncing off the walls who are not, uh, you know, not verbal, um, or engaging socially. Uh, so, so not as profound enough. Um, today, those women who were the oddballs are growing up and they're finding themselves in the workplace and they're like, well, I have no, um, focus. I can't get my tasks done. Um, I, I feel overwhelmed and it turns out they have ADHD. So, in childhood, they were able to pick up, hmm, this is socially acceptable. I'm going to do this. But then later on life, they realize they haven't got the skills to 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 be organized in the way they need to be.
0: Hmm. That's yeah. you know i'm I'm working with a few people right now, and one young professional that is experiencing a great deal of distress, trying to get past a major milestone in their, uh, their, their career. And ADHD is a major milestone for this person. And they're so frustrated because they see other people who are able to focus, retain information, take a big test, put it behind them and move on. Yeah. And this person's not able to do that. And it's intensely frustrating. This person needs to work 10 times as hard as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it's, it's really frustrating for people who are trying to follow a linear career, cra- career track.
1: Right, and these these individuals, they have to realize that they need they have different needs. So it's kind of like an adult IEP. What are my needs? What what is what is going on with me? I can't stay focused. Okay, maybe I need to carry a notepad. Maybe I need to realize I need to write down everything to remember it. Uh, maybe I need longer deadlines. I need to talk to my supervisor. I need a longer deadline. I can't get things done immediately. Um, so it's really. They have to find uh, environments where they can have those needs met. So they need to understand what are my needs? Like, where are my shortcomings? What what do I need to meet those goals? Like, do I need to make lists? Do I need to have a calendar that's on the wall? Um, do I need to use those special tools? And can I find a workplace where I have a supervisor who's understanding and can help me meet those, those accomplishments, those goals in my own way?
0: How do do tempers factor into all of this tempers yeah yeah i i, I find that there's all all often frustration that is experienced between a couple when you know often turns to yelling when there's misunderstanding with these things and oftentimes the couples uh, show up to me and they're fired up
1: right so we have a situation where there's a pattern of, I like to say the tortoise and the, the hailstorm. So you have a, a, the typically the neurodiverse, let's say a a gentleman with autism, very common in my practice, gentleman with, has autism and he is a withdrawer because he does not like, um, you know, conflict. So he's conflict avoidant. He withdraws on himself when he is being hailstormed on by his wife, who is uh, quote-unquote nagging him. So she's nagging because she doesn't feel he's listening to her. She wants him to go to the store and get milk, but he keeps forgetting. She's frustrated. So she she is raising her voice and she's nagging because she wants very desperately to be heard. Uh, But he is withdrawn. He's stonewalling. He does not want the hailstorm anymore. He's not listening to her. And then there's a point when he can't take the hailstorm anymore and the tortoise comes out and snaps at the hailstorm and that's when you have the full on both people are now yelling at each other the conflict um that we're like whoa how did we get here um but it it really it starts out with the the person not being heard hailstorming on top of the tortoise the tortoise eventually not not having it anymore snapping at the hailstorm to make it stop and the it is recommended that the person who would be the hailstorm to soften the hailstorm, to slow down, to allow the withdrawer to feel safe to come out of their shell and go, wait, what did you want at the store? Um, So it's really encouragement to create a safe space for the withdrawer.
0: What would you suggest as things to be aware of if somebody thinks that their partner might beyond the spectrum?
1: Yes, that's that can be a hard hard question for a couple, especially if one, the person who they believe could be neurodiverse comes from a family background where neurodiversity is looked down upon. So it can be a very difficult situation. So what I recommend is to just look at the behaviors and the traits and not necessarily do you need a diagnosis. Just look at what is going on and maybe we need to to look at strategies that would be for someone who's, who's on the spectrum, but not necessarily, are we going to say, well, we need to know we, there doesn't have to be a diagnosis to use the strategies.
0: Yeah. That's, that's great advice. That, that, Mm -hmm. that really is. I know, I know it's, this is something that has become more, there's more and more awareness that this exists out there and more and more people are getting these diagnoses. And the great thing is there's more, Uh, there's more understanding of what it is, but there also is the question of where did this come from? Like what is happening that that there's all of this change in how people's
1: minds work? Can I give my hypothesis? Yes. (laughs) Okay, so uh, my, just, I'm not gonna say I read this any book, but I like to look at things from the point of view of how did humans survive if this were in a saber tooth mammoth time period how did this help people survive now i believe that those with let's specifically autism um people who were able to withdraw and be comfortable by themselves and to highly focus on a task were those who in the times of early humans they were there but those were the ones who were highly skilled in let's say arrowhead makings making tools um doing a specific task that helped the rest of the group survive whereas everyone else was much more social. And so those are the ones that went out hunting. They did the gathering together, the much more social, like the child rearing. And so I believe that autism has actually been around for our entire the entire human existence. It's just, um, we've created a society that's much more social and we have an expectation of how people should react rather than considering, Wow, this is how this person would have been early on, and they helped the survival of the group by their highly fixated and not needing to be totally socially, you know, part of the group. Like they were on the the outskirts doing something very special for the survival of the group. Um, and and that's that's my belief. If I were to look at, I <laughs> to take everything back. How would this help humans survive? And and I really truly believe that 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 is part of it. That these neurodiversity traits have been around forever. It's just yeah. our society is screwy.
0: <laughs> our society's pretty darn screwy. <laughs> well, yeah. you also have another set of specialties that you work with mm-hmm. uh, and you work with people who have, and I'm just kind of going to let you talk about it here. Like <laughs> um, is it sexual dysfunction? Is it not understanding intimacy or like, what is the specialty that you have?
1: Ooh. Okay. Um, So what I, I don't do too much work with it anymore because I've kind of been thrown into the, um, I'm in the neurodiversity and then blended families and co-parenting that's just blown up because there's so many blended families or individuals who want to blend their families. Um, but, uh, what I was working with those in sex therapy, it was, it was geared around people with either, uh, severe, uh, Let's say uh, ranges in in wanting intimacy. So, like in a couple, just an extreme range where this person wants it all the time, and this person doesn't want it ever. Or um, individuals who have um, erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation. And um, this this area, uh, I found it's mostly geared around anxiety, anxiety around. Uh, self-anxiety around being with a person um, and even a childhood, childhood uh, expectations and the the information that, that especially um, men received um, early on in their childhood about what a man is.
0: How common is erectile dysfunction?
1: Um, so I live in Silicon Valley and here it is very, very uh, prevalent because anxiety levels are so high, especially when you go into uh, industries of um, so CEOs, executives, it, it, it's rampant. It's rampant there because the high high anxiety rate of you need to perform, you need to push yourself, you need to be successful, you need to get up the ranks, um, and so there's a lot of performance issues when it comes to just coming home and just. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, w- I
1: was the CEO of
0: a company in the Silicon Valley, and um, there is no rest. There is no rest. You mm-hmm. you are that job. 24 hours a day it crushes you. and so yeah, that stress yeah. it it affects every single part of your life. And so when when you're treating people with uh, erectile dysfunction or, or uh, what are you recommending that they do?
1: A lot of it is working on their stress level so it's stress go to the doctors or anything that you need um unfortunately a lot of anti anxiety medication anti depressants create erectile dysfunction so that's something to that needs there needs to be awareness of but a lot of it is is okay what changes in your lifestyle do you need to to lower your stress level to have less anxiety and also another issue too is they're coming home after being gone all the time coming home and they don't have any connection with their spouse. So they're in a, if they're in a relationship, there's very little connection there, uh, because they're not home that often. And so does wife want to have intimacy? No. Cause where's the, where's the connection. And so it's, it's reconnecting with their spouse as well, but in a manner that is not jumping right into intercourse. It's Can we just cuddle? Can we just rebuild that, that feeling of, of being togetherness Uh, and that in itself is a stress relief. So it's like, it's, it's a change of lifestyle. What is important to you is being a CEO and being stressed out important, or is it rechanging that? What is the, your schedule look like given allowing people to have permission to have boundaries when it comes to work. Which is really hard because there's an there's an unwritten expectation that because you're on salary, you're going to work your ass off, and so it's it's creating those those healthy boundaries even if you're a salaried worker.
0: What is it that a partner can do for somebody who's struggling with this?
1: Mm. Um, A partner can be there to hear their spouse when they come home instead of having you haven't been here all day. You're never with me. Instead of telling their partner what their partner's not doing for them, you know, be there for their, your partner to show, um, I'm glad you're here. Have appreciation that they are here when they are, make it safe for them to want to be home. (laughs) I think that's the biggest deal. It's, it's, you could be at work or you could be home, make home a place you want to go to.
0: Yeah. What are the kinds of sexual dysfunctions that women tend to have?
1: Um, the big one I've, I've seen is vaginismus. Um, that's that's the common one, uh, and uh, low sex drive. Now, low sex drive could be either they just have a lower want. A low sex drive isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could be I just don't I don't think about it. I don't want it. I don't really, you know, it's not something I I think about during my day. Um, it could be, um, I'm so stressed out that the idea sounds like another uh, item on my list of things to do. And so how do we change that? And so the, those are the areas that I, I've seen and I've worked with.
0: Can you explain what va-
1: vaginism is? So vaginism is when a woman cannot allow intercourse uh, or it's incredibly painful. So the pelvic floor is, is very painful. Um, and the recommendation is that they see uh, their, their um, uh, doctor to see if there's anything medical going on. And then if that can be ruled out, then uh, we work on anxiety. So just, just working on their stress level, anxiety towards um, intercourse, sexual um, uh, behavior um, and looking at their, you know, kind of going back to their childhood, what information were you taught? What did your, your role models tell you about uh, intimacy? Is it, is it a belief system that kept you from, you know, wanting to, until now you're married and uh, (laughs) you're supposed to have children, but you've been told your whole life, you're not supposed to, um, you know, have intimacy with anyone. So it's, it's a mind body connection that we work with.
0: Are you noticing differences in the way that people, uh, in people's desire to to do things that is based upon popular images or pornography, uh, the Mm. effect that this may have, and I'm not talking necessarily negative, I'm just talking the effect that it would have, positive or negative, on the way that people see themselves
1: sexually? Mm. Well, uh, women think that they will never live up to a standard um, and one of the <laughs> things that I've heard is I, uh, women do not want their males to see their genitals or want to have their genitals, uh, altered to look a certain way because of what they've seen in porn, even though their genitals are perfectly normal and fine because the ones viewed in porn are accepted by men a certain way. I should look like that to be sexy. Um, and men also, especially if they, they've started watching pornography early on, they have unreasonable expectations of what their partner's going to do or what she's going to look like. And so porn does, it, it creates these unreasonable expectations for both partners and then they can't get aroused. And then they're wondering, why are we not having fun? Cause it's not a natural thing anymore. It's scripted.
0: Yeah. 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 Our- how, what do you kind of like prescribe for couples that are having a hard time with, maybe they've, they've been together for a really long time and they're looking mm-hmm. for something fun to do. Is there, is there safe and uh, dignified things that uh, yeah. uh, couples can do <laughs> that generally, people generally feel okay doing?
1: Yes. Um, I like to, I have them start out with outer touch and just outer touch, holding hands um, uh, rubbing the arm, giving maybe shoulder rub, but you just stay there for a bit. You get comfortable and then you can move to other areas such as maybe, uh, touching the face, um, maybe a little more, uh, around this area of the body. Um, and you, you work, you work your way to the, the core of the body, Um, but it's done in small increments and when both parties are comfortable with it and want to do it, uh, and then, and you just kind of like have fun, you rediscover each other. And I, I've had couples who are, who are doing premarital counseling do this. I've had couples who have been together for 27 years and have children do this, uh, because somewhere in there, there all of a sudden was a loss of trust or an anxiety of some kind because someone said something once. And so we rebuild trust, but you start at the outer and you move your way in and you don't do anything until both parties are like, Oh yeah. Okay. This would be fun. And as long as you're giggling and you're having fun, then let's keep doing it. But if there's no fun, then let's stop (laughs) or let's go back a little, (laughs) but there should always be an element of fun and, and a little bit of just excitement there too.
0: you brought up something uh, that you're you're kind of talking in some way about an affair uh, and the recovery from a breach of trust Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And when, when you're working with a couple that has had even, even an emotional affair, a texting relationship, a, you know, what, whatever it is, what are the most effective ways that you use to help a couple reestablish connection with one another?
1: So the first thing I tell the couple is this is the old relationship is dead and we are now creating a new relationship. And I always have a bit of discernment counseling in there. Discernment is the decision to either it's a three-pronged approach. We stay in counseling, we decide to discontinue counseling and move on, or we continue working on the the recovery. And so uh, so there's discernment in in this uh affair recovery process because not all uh couples that come to counseling to repair after um an affair remain together um because sometimes there's some hurts that just cannot be rebuilt um so the first thing is the old relationship is dead we're going to create a new relationship and to create a new relationship we have to understand Uh, You know, and what went wrong? Why did things go the way they did? This is not to place blame on anyone or another, but typically comes down to a lack of communication. What did we not communicate about? Uh, What need did I not tell you that I had? Or was there something that you wanted that I just could give? So it goes down to what did we not communicate about? And how can we you know, move on with actually having that communication. So we're getting to know each other again. And so that that's where I started. And the couple can tell me what they're comfortable with. Do they want full disclosure or are they will, they're ready to just move on and just rebuild their communication. Um, Cause what it comes down to it really it's, it's communication.
0: Do you yeah. find that full disclosure helps?
1: Um, it depends on the person. It does. For some people, it does. For others, it's too much and then it, it's it, it's more than they wanted to know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes people think they want to know and they really it wasn't really worth it.
1: Yes. Yes. So um some people they're like, yes, I want full disclosure, but we don't get to full disclosure until we worked on communication in my practice. So we work on communication first. We we work on how do we communicate um in a manner that is respectful and where we feel safe. And then if we can get to that, then we can, okay, do you want disclosure? How much disclosure? um, How many questions do you wanna ask? And we do it in practice. So we do it um, in front of the counselor. We do not do it at home. We don't do it in front of the children. (laughs) We do it in a very encapsulated, safe environment. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's. This, this is really amazing work and it's really hard work because every couple is a little bit different.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, and, and, I uh, you, you got into this work, uh, and, because you, you had an interest in, in this sort of thing. Where did you grow up? Where, what's your story? Where'd you come from?
1: <laughs> well, I, I grew up in Santa Clara, California and, you know my parents and three other siblings and the eldest of four and uh yeah pretty pretty basic <laughs> but uh, i knew i wanted to help people because of uh, my childhood um so my mother has epilepsy mm-hmm. and throughout my childhood it was like every day there was a seizure unfortunately and i was as the eldest had to take care of my siblings and i <laughs> There was a situation once. I think I was about no older than 8 years old where my mom had a seizure in a parking lot. And I was with my little sister and we were it was a crowded parking lot and we're yelling help because our mother's on the on the ground and no one came to help. So I asked my sister to stay with mom and I went inside the store and asked to use their phone to call 911. And they said you can use the pay phone outside. So I went outside and I used the payphone to call 911. My sister's still in the parking lot. My sister's three years younger than me. So she's six years old, screaming help. No one's helping. And it was this situation that really made me not want anyone else to run into, have this happen to them. I always told myself, I want to be there to help others who can't help themselves. Um, I will never allow anyone to be in pain and for me to just walk by. Uh, so it's really been my my life's mission to be there for others, to to have a a, a life of service, as as they say.
0: I'm, I'm I'm sorry that that story is beyond belief. Yeah, I, I, it, that, that story is. I mean, I and mean, I I can't I can't even imagine. A young person walks into a store and says, "I need to dial nine one one. My mom mm-hmm. is having a seizure." For them to say
1: go outside and use a payphone. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's and I remember that situation like it was yesterday. It's uh and I drive by the store every once in a while. Go and I I'm right back there. It's it really was the turning point in my life where I went from a little kid that was kind of selfish to a person who's like, I'm gonna take care of the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a different world. You're talking about the mid 1980s there.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: a totally different uh, kind of world than we live in now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, you you grew up in Santa Clara and uh, you know, where where did you go from there? What's your story?
1: Oh boy. Um so grew up in Santa Clara um ended up going to San Jose State. San Jose State I decided I wanted to really get into helping people, although I was a music major. Um I had a a point in time where my <laughs> my music equipment was stolen out of my locker which made me so upset cuz here again <laughs> something's been done to you know to me um and i've asked for help i did a police report and it turned out that the police didn't look for my instrument they looked for the school instruments that were stolen and so again i felt no one no one's here to help me I'm yelling for help and no one's here to help me. Um, and so from there, I started looking at professions where I could help, where I had, um, some, some way of, of having my hands in, in, um, you know, making other people's lives better. Uh, and so that took me into the, you know, the, I don't know, the road to counseling. Um, and so, I mean, it took me a while to get here, but <laughs> I think it came at the right time. My kids are a little er- older and so I can go to school. Um, and uh, I've been practicing since 2019. So um, yeah, it, it, this has been uh, an amazing career. I really wish I had started earlier. However, if I had started earlier, I don't think I'd appreciate it the way I do today. Um, and uh, the life experience uh, I, I've had, I believe really helps infer how I work with people and, and just how I can hold safety for them.
0: Yeah. You're, you're, you're helping others comes from, it, it sounds like a number of really significant memories of mm. being violated. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> having, having your rights violated and everything like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, here you, you come to this and you you also, did I hear that you work with people who are on a conditional release from jail or prison?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, conditional release from uh, the California State Hospitals. So these are oh. individuals who have been uh, charged with a a crime. However, they've been found um, mentally ill. So they're in the state hospitals and they would probably be there for life, but we give them an opportunity to to have a conditional release in the community um, as long as they meet and and maintain requirements so there's a lot of high level requirements that they have to maintain in order to stay in the community um and one of the big ones is uh, medication compliance and um being transparent with their uh their um are they having symptoms um and they're allowed to have symptoms but are they are they allowing the symptoms to go unreported? And so there's a lot of uh, oversight in these individuals.
0: This sounds relatively intensive, mm-hmm. uh, and, and these 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 people, they've I'm assuming they've been convicted of a crime, but found to have uh, various different psychological symptoms that created the foundation for why that crime occurred and now they're trying again to be in society you find them to be very motivated
1: um they have to have motivation to be in our program and their motivation is to stay um to to be regulated and to be a part of the community a lot of them have jobs and they're very proud of their jobs um and so they have to they have to meet certain stages or levels within our program and with each level they're they're given um, more responsibilities. And as they move up in the levels, there is this sense of pride and motivation to to do you know, to meet the goals and to to follow our rules. Yeah, so it's it's a wonderful program. Um, the program is actually started um, in an effort to clear up uh, beds, as you say in the hospitals. So there were a lot of mentally ill people who are still in the jails and being sent to prison. They were not receiving an appropriate care and they were dying. And so by moving these people who are pretty stable and nonviolent, moving them out of the state hospitals and putting them in our conditional release program, you're opening the opportunity for people who really need to be in the state hospital to be able to get in there.
0: So. You work in a world of family therapy and you help people and there's more and more households are not made up of uh, children and couples that started together. There's a lot of blended family sort of work that's going on. So what's your experience in this? How do you work with people and what are the normal issues?
1: Uh, Right. Well, (laughs) the blended family, it's very common. It's also one of the most difficult relationships in, in of a family. It's a very difficult. Um, so you think you say you look at the divorce rate of a regular, you know, nuclear family that's come together. Um, the divorce rate of a blended family is even bigger than that. Uh, so for various reasons, um, first I want to start out with <laughs> every blended family is created out of loss or grief because a loss of the previous relationship, the loss of, you know, a dream or an expectation, um, grieving uh, the loss of a a spouse, uh, the loss of a relationship or, a, yeah, the, all those dreams. So <laughs> we have to look at that first. We have to look at the fact that a blended family is already coming from loss. Um, you also have a hierarchy of need. You have the need of okay, these two people are coming in but they're also got one or both of the the couples bringing in a child. So that's what creates the blended family really. It's the child. Um so where do we put you know if you you look at the hierarchy of who gets what uh in in blended family counseling, you have to go you have to have a blueprint. You can't just yeah, let's move in together. Let's get married without a blueprint, because then everyone's going to be miserable. No one's going to have their needs met. The child's going to be, in, in, you know, grieving the fact that, Oh my God, I have a new mommy. What do I do? Um, so you have to have a blueprint. Um, the blueprint I recommend <laughs> is you have the, and I wish I had a whiteboard, but uh, you have the two parents here. You have mommy and mom and uh, the incoming father. And then you have the children. Now, the hierarchy has to be the two spouses. They need to be a united front. It doesn't matter how old the children are. Um, The children, let's say there's another co-parent. The children have time with the other co-parent. They're not always in the household. So you have to think, who is always gonna be in the house? Well, the other adult. So, the communication there needs to be open. It needs to take paramount over the children. And it sounds harsh and everyone bites me on it. But really, the children are temporary. They are not going to be there forever. They're either there every other week, every other weekend, maybe even 100% of the time. But once those children turn 18, they can leave. Who's going to be there? Your spouse. So, the priority needs to be on that relationship. If that relationship is 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 stabilized everything else falls into place and so that's what i help um my blended families realize is having a blueprint what does communication look like because communication is key in in every relationship um and who's the disciplinarian how do we discipline say you have two sets of children from two different other co-parents coming in and they have their own arrangements on discipline communication has to be very clear on If there is discipline that needs to be done, who does it for what child and how, how is it done in this household? So it gets complicated. And that's why this is such a very specific focus, um, because you cannot look at it through the lens of a typical, um, you know, relationship where both the parents had the child You can't, it is a totally different lens because you're looking at very like, you're looking at the parent, two parents coming in, kids coming in, co-parents, extended families. It's nutty.
0: (laughs) So so children who are raised in this environment, Mm -hmm. are, are there different issues that you see that they have than children that are in what would be considered a nuclear family?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. The younger, the child, the better success, better the success of the child and the family integrating the older, the child, such as the teenage uh, age group, very difficult. That's when there's a lot more stressors, a lot more communication needs to be done, a lot more openness to allowing the, the child to voice how they're feeling, but then also setting boundaries and ground rules of their, their behavior. Um so there's just a lot more work when it comes to the older children.
0: Are you noticing differences in client needs and behavior in the mm. post-COVID era? A lot has changed in for mm. everybody. And I know that at a certain period of time there was this perspective that look at how badly it's affecting the children. And I mean, I'm looking at this as a clinician. I'm going, it's affecting the adults every bit as much as it's affecting the kids. What are you seeing?
1: So post-COVID in general, um, a lot more isolating behavior. Um, I'm not going to go out as much. Um, Families don't do things outside the house together as much as they did before. It's a lot more um yeah we kind of do our own thing in our rooms um a lot more video gaming (laughs) but then also a lot of children their 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 interests are a lot more um isolated i'm i'm going to do my thing in my room and i know we 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 saw this before covid with teenagers but now it's younger and younger children doing this isolating themselves in their room doing their own thing the parents are trying to get them out Side the children just don't want to um and it's not that they don't want to there is a a tinge of anxiety there too like (laughs) because the parents put that anxiety on their children it's not safe to go outside it's not safe to be with people or play with so the recommendation is to keep um keep on encouraging it just keep on getting the the children outside um, and for parents to get outside as well with their children and just just keep on trying um, and make it a regular thing. Uh, if we, we can't give up, we can't give up and and just go, well, you know, I tried. No, we have to keep on trying. It took what COVID was a year in isolation, might take a year to get out of the isolation.
0: You're doing a lot of work that's very personal with people what's it like for you
1: um to work with people
0: <laughs> all of this heaviness
1: um that's an interesting question cuz when i work with um incoming uh you know counselors who just got out of grad school and they're going into their internship for the first time i tell them you will experience burnout you will you're going to be burned out on other people's emotions and experiences um, you're going to be exhausted hearing other people's stories. You're going to go home and not know what to do with it. And that's okay. Um, it takes, I think it takes a couple years for a counselor to learn how to um, hold space for another person hour by hour to hour, day by day by day, and to not absorb it. And to not have it be draining, and and it's all about self care. It's all about what am I doing to to release that energy? What am I doing um, to to counteract that countertransference?
0: <laughs> okay, explain what that is.
1: Countertransference is, and I'm going to use the example of a, a counselor. Countertransference is when a counselor is is with a page, a, a client. Who is telling them a story? And you as a counselor are like, oh my God, I know what that's like. I've lived it. I, I, and you, you're kind of like going into your own uh selfish mind. Um, you you're not you're not present with the the patient, or I apologize, the client. Um, you're you're kind of in your own experience. And so that's counter transference. And the recommendation is to acknowledge I'm I'm having counter transference to accept it, to know it's happening, and then to go back to the, the client um, because it's a natural part of being a counselor. Um, during, and this is actually part of my PhD dissertation, during COVID, all counselors were experiencing counter because we were in the shared stress of COVID, of quarantine, of lockdown. So we're working through telehealth we're 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 supporting our our clients in their anxiety and depression but we ourselves are also experiencing at the same time in our own home <laughs> at the same time and how can you not have counter-transference? how can you not have that shared stress phenomenon occurring so what do you do with it self care have activities that give you joy um be social you know, do things that make you feel happy. You you release that energy back out into the world.
0: What do you think needs to change in the mental health care system?
1: Um, my idea of what needs to, <laughs> most mental health practice is you're only paid when you have the client in, in front of you um and so what that does and i've seen it with a couple of my cohorts is you work hours enough to support yourself but you're only paid on the you know the time you're face to face with the the client and you end up working more than you can actually emotionally handle and i know there's a, there's usually a minimum of 15 a week of 15 billable <laughs> um clients a week but maybe some people need less than that. But then how do you make a living? because <laughs> you're you're spending your time not only seeing the the patient, but you're also writing notes and and doing all those things and advocacy and reaching out and collaborating and doing groups. And you're not paid for any of that time. And so what what a lot of counselors do is they overwork themselves, seeing uh, clients um but they're not they're not paid for that time. Uh, that they're doing all the other work, and I think it just leads to burnout. You're constantly chasing uh, an income, and and that's 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 what I've experienced, and love what my my cohorts are experiencing. Also, internships internships are not paid. <laughs> you're lucky if you have a paid internship. So so you're you're working to support your internship to pay for school you have no time for self-care and so they push self-care in school but there's no opportunities for it because you're working so hard to make make the 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 income that you need that that's how i feel that i think that that needs to change
0: yeah that would that would provide counselors that have more time to be more meticulous Mm -hmm. more detail oriented on a case do more research and, and everything and and I, doing the research on a case makes all the difference when you come to the table with
1: mm-hmm.
0: a, a new exercise, a new idea, right. a new thing to do. But that takes time. That takes time and effort and and not having the time for the prep that is paid, it disincentivizes doing that kind of really beneficial right. work.
1: Right. and And also, you know, what do counselors do to make up that that time and income, they raise their rates. And now you're you're missing a population. Now a population doesn't have access to this amazing counselor who's willing to go and do this research.
0: Yeah. So Silicon Valley, you're hmm. there, you're in the midst of this very strange culture that uh, that arguably believes the entire world uh, revolves around.
1: Yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh.
0: It, it, people who go, I'm from the Silicon Valley and we set the standard that the other, and I just. Uh...
1: I'd like to know how long they actually were, you lived in Silicon Valley, because I I mean, you and I, we, we were born and raised here in Silicon Valley. I don't call it Silicon Valley. I call it San Jose. Mm-hmm. I call it the Bay Area. And I think when we were living here, there were cherry orchards everywhere. There was it was an ag agricultural area. And so when people say, Well, I'm from Silicon Valley, I'm like, you obviously weren't born there. <laughs> this is an agricultural area.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, it was. And and now all the orchards are parking lots and Apple Park and all of that. And 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 you know, these these companies. Mm-hmm. They build the employee experience around living there, living right. at the building. They do your, they do your food, they do your dry cleaning, they do yep. all of these things to incentivize you to spend the maximum amount of time possible. What are the main issues that you see in clients that are basic Silicon
1: Valley people? Um yeah, a lack of boundaries and prioritization of what's important in life. Um so they they lack connection with their families, lack connection with their spouses. Uh there's fear. There's a lot of fear. And the fear is based on if I don't perform or if I don't give all my my whole life and soul to this company, I'm going to lose my job. And it it's uh, Ooh, there's so much, there's so much pain here. Um, just the, the drive that one needs to maintain, um, you can give all the free salad bars you want to a person, but if they're not able to have, have their own life outside of work, they're not, a. they're not happy. They're not a person. Um, and, and these, these families, they're falling apart. They're absolutely falling apart. Um, yeah, I, I I have nothing good to say about it. <laughs>
0: there,
1: there, there was a,
0: a food reviewer, and I'm really sorry to say that I don't know this person's name. My wife was just telling me about mm-hmm. who goes all around the world and reviews the local cuisine goes to the high end Michelin rated oh, no. restaurants and sits down and, and talks mm. about the experience. So this, this person came to the South Bay area to review yeah. the high end food. And this person, Where'd they, go? Stays, I, I don't, I don't know where they were. This is relayed to me by my wife it said, look, the food's not that good. The food's not that good at any of these restaurants that are supposed to be fantastic. And I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe anywhere. Anywhere I park my car, anywhere I go out at night, I don't feel safe in any of these areas. And he left early. He left early. and He did South Bay and North Bay and West Bay and like like these different areas around there. And he just abandoned his mission to review food in the Bay Area. And so you have...
1: This wow. really
0: weird culture where you've got, you know, everybody has purchased their Porsche uh, 911 to drive three miles to work yes. and the Teslas and stuff like that. And then this, this impoverished population of literal other cities that exist underneath population, like, like a uh, uh, traffic overpasses that mm-hmm. have their own mayors that had their tent mm. cities. They have their own mayors, their own enforcement, security forces, and everything like that. There's this, this, this—you can be right across the street from a high-end, mm. big Silicon Valley company, and then there's a camp.
1: That's very true, and um, I can't deny that. Where I live, uh, I live in a real, I'm lucky i am lucky to live in a really nice neighborhood, but um, because we're so close to a, I guess a, a camp very well-established one too. And you don't know who's in there. Um, we can't, we cannot leave anything unlocked. We cannot there. Um, we have to take precautions and and it's very sad. And our trash is constantly being searched, even though it's behind our gate. <laughs> and I, and I work in downtown San Jose. Um, mm-hmm. So downtown San Jose is another beast um, where walking You're you have to you you have to take precautions. Uh I can't say that I don't take a walk and fear that I'm gonna get run over by a car. I mean, (laughs) because every time I take a walk in downtown San Jose, I'm either uh yelled at because I wouldn't give money, or I'm almost hit by a car because I'm not walking across the crosswalk fast enough. So I can see why he abandoned his (laughs) mission.
0: Well, so so this high stress lifestyle, this, this entire region that is, it is, is there's, there's, there's a real culture to it. And, and, yeah. you know, I I'm from there. And so like, I recognize it when I, when I'm there that, you know, you have you have, there's such a status to wearing your lanyard for your company that you work for when you're out for drinks at night. If you have a lanyard that has a big name on it, like wow. that's a thing you wear the jacket that has your company name on it. Like I, I've seen a lot of that sort of thing there. So there's a, there's a real status uh, about it's a it.
1: Status, Yeah. And these are people who, I mean, I guarantee all those people, they're not from here. They're from their transplants from somewhere else. They've come in for work and they're here and they don't there's this, there's a lack of care of the environment a lack of care of those who are in it and they're going to leave no one intends to stay here um it's 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 so lacking in in a community it absolutely is for that reason it's i have community in my company but if you're not my company i you're not worth my time
0: yeah yeah, get of right. my way. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and this, this mentality, do you see it creating such stress in people's lives that they're wondering what else they could actually do with their lives and maybe working on making some different plans of how they want to spend the years of their lives?
1: I don't know. Um, you know, the common, the common theme that I hear is no one cares. No one cares what I do. No one cares what I've done. Um, so a lack of motivation, like who cares? Hmm. And that's, that's, it's very sad. It's very sad. I, I, I don't see motivation to do more.
0: How, 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 how very sad, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's a lot of work to do to feel so alone. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just gonna, yeah, no one cares. I'm just going to do my thing and yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I'm just going to keep up. I think that's a big thing. I'm just going to keep up. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I'm going to fly under the radar. <laughs> I really don't see much drive in 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 the the movement up, upward mo- momentum. I don't see it.
0: Have you seen with the friends that you have that have stayed around in the Bay Area? Have you seen this kind of thing affect them?
1: Honestly, all my friends have left. My i just had two friends leave and go to new york so
0: (laughs) most everybody that i grew up with there is Mm -hmm. gone and those who are there either adapted very easily Mm -hmm. to the tech thing or they have inherited uh, a property or a business or something like that that allowed them to stay because the starting of a business there um, it is it is an incredibly competitive thing.
1: It, it, so I am I am your friend who has stayed. Um, and I have to say, the only reason I'm still here, because my sister has moved out, my brother has moved out, and I have one brother who's still here, but he doesn't know any better. Um, the only reason I have stayed is because I'm afraid that if I leave, I will never be able to return if I wanted to.
0: Okay, next question. Why would you ever want to return?
1: My parents—they <laughs> are still here. <laughs> but also, I—I I mean, I—I I love, I love, I love the Bay Area. Like I don't know. I guess it's because I don't know any better. I've never lived anywhere else. So,
0: <laughs> well, um, aside from the the culture that we've been talking about, the Bay Area is in in mm-hmm. some parts exceedingly beautiful. Yes. and it's a short drive to the ocean there are hiking trails up in the mountains that have yes. that have always been beautiful and 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 so there there is a lot of there's a lot to do mm-hmm. it's, it's just that there is a there is a rat race that is relentless and, right and, and then when you have a large set of layoffs like a you know the big companies are doing right now I would imagine that there would be a great deal more just overall anxiety and depression going on.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people, they they don't realize that there's a lot of beauty here to be enjoyed. A lot of people do, but I think a lot of people forget that it's there, that they can go outside and have a walk and enjoy it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. For being on mindful mute. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about how you care for people. So, mm-hmm. how do people find you? How do they get in touch with you?
1: Oh, goodness. It's um, a good question. I don't, I am um, on psychology today, um, but you can also email me at um, abuckman.therapy at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest way to find me.
0: Terrific. Yes. All right. I'll put that in the description.
1: <laughs> so again, uh, a
0: big thank you to Amanda Buckman for coming and talking about the caring and healing of people and and all that goes into that. For everybody else who's listening, please like and subscribe to the Mindful Mutiny podcast. It really helps in growing something like this. And whatever you do, go be something
1: great.